The Grand is a nonprofit organization. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. The Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters Down East is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the ninth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about political parties. Do they still matter? We'll talk about the state of the two-party system, how recent trends have weakened the parties even as partisanship has grown, whether our political parties threaten our democracy or hold the main hope for its salvation. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join our conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guest today. Joining us in the studio is Mark Brewer. Professor Mark Brewer is a professor of political science at the University of Maine and been a guest on our show before. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Ann. Um, and joining us on the phone is Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Welcome, Jonathan. Great to be here. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Um, according to Dwight Eisenhower, I'm going to read a little quote here. If a, little, if a political party does not have its foundation in the determination to advance a cause that is right and that is moral, then it is not a political party. It is merely a conspiracy to seize power. And I think a lot of people feel that way about the parties that the two-party system that we have today. Nationwide, we seem to have lost faith, with 43% of voters unenrolled in a party, over 36% unenrolled here in Maine, topping enrollment in either of the two major parties, in other words, more unenrolled than enrolled. Some systematic reforms have served to weaken the influence of the institutional party apparatus, at the same time, partisanship and gridlock are at an all-time high. Are the parties an active threat to our democracy? Are they merely irrelevant? Or are they essential to a functioning democratic system? Do they represent a serious threat to self-government or hold the promise for a more right and moral future? So this is what we want to talk about today. And um, Jonathan, you've written some very important and provocative articles on this subject in the last um, several months. And so I want to sort of put it to you first and just ask you to very quickly make the case for our viewers why stronger parties would be better. Um, Thank you. I should mention that I have a bit of a cough. And if you hear me cough a bit, I apologize for that. I should also mention that my co-author, uh, Benjamin Wittes, also of Brookings, could not be with us today, sends his regrets and also his admiration for the good work that you guys are, are doing. Um, the Constitution is a great document, but it doesn't deal with everything, and it doesn't deal with how you organize power in the government. Of course, you know, you have competing branches of government. So it sets up a competition, but not an organization. And right after the Constitution was um, enacted, Parties came into being, and they do that work. They gather people into these broad coalitions. They broker agreements within the coalitions. They create networks of favors and IOUs. 
that encourage people to work together accountably. They uh, vet and develop candidates and screen out political sociopaths. Sociopaths are very attracted to politics, as the founders knew. They do most of the background work of politics that makes it function. And then when you weaken them, you lose that organizing capacity, you get political chaos, and that's where we are right now. What do you want to add to that, Mark? Well, I'm in full agreement on the absolute essentialness of parties in the American system. I mean, one of my favorite political scientists, E.E. Schatzneider, said that that American democracy is unthinkable, save for political parties. And and he's absolutely right. And and Jonathan is as well. Uh, What's interesting to me is that, you know, many of the founders were – at least initially, adamantly anti-party, but realized pretty quickly, especially as the second term of George Washington as president wound down, that the system they had designed really couldn't function in any viable way without parties. And I think that's why we saw people like you know Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson cobbling them together pretty quickly. And, and I, I would say they became even more essential as um, participation expanded in the early part of the 19th and middle part of the 19th century, uh, you know, that we had people like Martin Van Buren realizing that we need to have political parties roughly resembling the the parties that we've had throughout most of our history until, you know, maybe the last 10 or 15 years when we've systematically set out to weaken them. And I think that's a huge mistake. Um, Kind of interesting because it seems like Enrollment in parties is declining. Um, universal suffrage, you know, over the long arc of history, we've in- brought more and more voters into the system. Um, and Jonathan, you're making some very interesting points about voters being rationally not all that well informed all the time. I mean, how does this all play together in terms of weakening the party, loss of respect for party elites or professional politicians, term limits? I mean, some of these trends, I don't know, I'm just blathering on here, but how do these things all sort of fit together to bring us to where we are? Well, one could write a big book on that subject, and other people have, so so <laughs> I, I won't try to be encyclopedic. Tons of things happened in society that have weakened Americans' trust in institutions. Parties have been part of that. Other things have happened that we did on purpose. Uh, I think Mark is absolutely right. We made a, a series of decisions that actually go back 100 years, but really accelerated in the 1970s, where we said, you know what, if we move intermediaries aside and have individual Americans make more and more political decisions for themselves, communicating directly with individual politicians, nothing in between, then we'll have more democracy and that will be better. And what we forgot about is that when we cut out the professionals and the partisans in the middle of the process who do the organizing, then that work doesn't get done and you get more frustration and not less. So oversimplifying a bit, um, we weakened the parties. They did a less and less good job at what they were supposed to do. That made us angrier at them. We weakened them further. What what things have happened that have structurally weakened the parties? Uh, is that for me or for... Well, let's give let Mark go first and then you can sweep up. Is that okay? Go ahead, Mark. Well, I mean, again, this would take... To, to run down the, the list and be encyclopedic would take longer than probably we have. I think, um, you know... Just the top two or three. I mean, if it depends on what time of year you want to look at. I mean, if you want to go back and look at the early part of the 20th century, certainly there are a number of progressive era reforms that, that were put in with the best of intentions. Um, 
And certainly, this, there's no denying that there was political like citizen initiative, uh, citizen initiative, all kind of all the you know the direct democracy approaches, but also things um, like party registration, um, you know, things that are that are opening up nominations. I think the biggest one opening up nominations to um, average voters rather than and taking them out of the hands of the party elites, and they're done with with good intentions of expanding democracy. But where Jonathan's absolutely correct is is people didn't recognize the unintended consequences that were going to come from that. So that's certainly the early part. If you go more recently, I would say the biggest um, step that's been taken to weaken parties over the last, depending on if you want to start in the 70s or you want to start in the 90s, has been campaign finance reform, which I think is is an absolute disaster for what we've done for political parties. And it's been a disaster for our representative democracy as well. What do you want to add to that, Jonathan? Well, you've got the curse of of the two guests who seem to agree about it. So (laughs) there's nothing I can debate there except to say amen. I would add one further thing, which to me is the most important of all, which is starting in the 70s and then accelerating greatly recently, we went to to primary um, contests to nominate our candidates. Now, that's been going on for 100 years, but the difference is until recently, the party regulars still found ways to kind of influence the process behind the scenes. They called it the invisible primary. If I want to run for House or Senate, I'd have to go raise a lot of money and touch the hems of a lot of party grandees before I'd be considered viable. So that did some screening. Well, that has now fallen apart over about the last 10 years. So basically, candidates can self-recruit. It doesn't matter how wacky or extreme they are, and if they can find money, and there's lots of money to be found, um, especially if they work outside the party, uh, that's the campaign finance piece, then they can put themselves forward, and if they can win a primary, um, in most seats they go straight through the general election and on to Congress. So we've created a much easier pathway for people who lack the stability or the experience to do politics into politics, uh, and that, I think, has been a key factor. How did it work before? Um, well, it depends what time frame you mean. Once upon a time, 100 years ago, parties selected candidates in smoke-filled rooms. Mm-hmm. And now, it turns out, people have a lot of bad things to say about that, but modern political science has looked at that and found that those candidates were actually pretty darn good And the races were competitive because the smoke-filled rooms did a pretty good job. Um, But people decided that was unfair, so we went to primaries, and that really became predominant starting in the 70s and then moving ahead from that. And then, as I said, what's changed, I think, recently that's that's made all the difference is that the back room, the sort of backdoor influence, the party regulars had still managed to wield in that process, using things like money and endorsements um, and networks. Um, those things have mostly fallen by the wayside. So it's been a gradual process with a tipping point at the end. And the end of that tipping point, you saw in the Republican presidential race, where you've got just tons of outsiders, extremists all over the map uh, putting themselves forward and the party unable um, to set its own boundaries for who its own candidates are going to be. There was a lot of talk after the presidential um, 
primary this year about the role of superdelegates and the Democratic side. And that sounds like a little bit of a vestige of what you're talking about, where the institutional party has a little bit more influence. Um, you know, people really seem to resent that, but it sounds like it might be in the family of things that you think might work. Yes, absolutely. The myth about, okay, so those who don't know, a superdelegate is basically a in the Democratic Party, a party regular, usually an elected official or a state uh, party official or county party official who gets a vote at the convention. And that's all it is. They get a vote. Um, but that means there's another 600 or so people uh, who are uh, who have some discretion at the end of the day. They cannot or really would not overturn a popular mandate for a candidate, but they do provide a kind of speed bump at the beginning of the process because when you decide to run for president as a Democrat, you know there are these 600 people out there and you need to go talk to them. You need to persuade them and appeal to them because they're going to be voting. So that makes you think about, wait a minute, am I behaving like a total sociopath here? Or can I show that I have some appeal to the party, that I'm, I can work with others, that I can show some professionalism? I so the Democrats now are fighting to retain that. There's a fight going on at this moment over whether to retain that last vestige of party approval. And do you think Republicans wish they had that? Uh, I think some of them do. I'm not sure that those people would have stopped Trump. Trump would have been very good at tweeting against them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of Republicans wish they had had a few more ways to have some leverage over who their own nominee was going to be. I want to ask you both about the way campaign finance reform has um, worked into this equation, but let's just do a little break here first. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine, and our topic today is political parties. Do they still matter? Our guests this morning are Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jonathan Rausch, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor to The Atlantic. And we've been talking about some recent developments in the political and structural landscape that have weakened the parties, and one of the elements that came up was um, modern campaign finance reform. So, uh, Mark, why don't you just give us a couple points of the reforms that have been enacted and how they have served to undermine party. Well, I'd be happy to. I, I should say at the at the outset that I'm my my views on campaign finance reform might be considered a little bit extreme because as I regularly tell my students, my view on on money in American politics is is one, you're not going to get it out of there, which I think most people would agree with. But two, as a result of that, Really, I, I would be in favor of full and immediate disclosure, and after that, I would I would have very few regulations. Um, but in terms of what's been done, I think the most negative thing uh, in terms of parties has been, um, you know, eliminating soft money uh, from parties. I think um, soft money is, is money that um, wasn't given uh, – there's a distinction between soft money and hard money, and I don't think we need to get into that here. But essentially, hard money is given directly to a candidate or a party and then can be spent essentially on anything. Soft money uh, is money that – and there are strict limits on hard money. Uh, soft money is, is um, has fewer limits on it. And to, um, there's conditions on what you can do with it and what you can't do with it. But 
essentially parties were able to, when they were able to take soft money, were able to to take that and, and build their own operations and also exert influence over candidates and potential candidates. And when soft money was banned from both national parties and then national parties couldn't funnel it to states. And that was part of McCain-Feingold, that's, right? That's McCain-Feingold. And, and that really, that money doesn't go away. That money is still out there. And instead of going to parties, which exert some control and have some conditions, it's now essentially um, kind of the wild, wild west out there. And I think that's a, a huge um, mistake. And I, I would, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, what John McCain and Russ Feingold think of the outcome of that. I suspect that they probably recognize their error on that, but it'd be interesting. What do you think, Jonathan? Um, completely and totally agree. Uh, and it's important to recognize these reforms were put in place with with good intentions, but like the war on drugs, for example, they forgot about the fact that if you suppress the above-ground money, uh, but you don't suppress the demand, it's just going to flow somewhere else. So we've got more money in the system by far than when we did when these reforms were enacted, but they're flowing to darker, less accountable places outside of the political parties, which are certainly not angels, but at least they're accountable. You know, you can vote for or against a party, and, and um, it's got a brand to defend, and it has to worry about governing. Right now, though, candidates, um, members of Congress, elected officials, tend to be more worried about what outside groups will do uh, to hit them with in primaries and negative ads than they are about what their own leadership can do, which makes it very hard to govern. And a big reason for that is that there are no limits on the amount of money that can flow outside the parties, but the parties are severely limited in what they can do. So today, actually, um, there's an emerging consensus. I don't think we're there yet, but moving in the direction of thinking that this has got to be fixed, that, that it makes no sense to make the parties the most limited actors, the most regulated actors in American politics. How much of that was exacerbated by Citizens United then? Mark, you want to do that? Yeah, I, I certainly. I mean, I think, I think Citizens United um, and uh, also the Speech Now case both added significantly to this. I mean, it. it not that I'm, again, I'm generally not a fan of restrictions on money in politics. And I generally tend to agree with the court's ruling in Buckley that money does equal speech, although that there'd be some who disagree. Like me. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> but, but that being said, limiting what the parties can do while, you know, as Jonathan pointed out, severely limiting what the parties can do while essentially removing the shackles, you know, from, from virtually all other Actors is it is just a recipe for disaster, and that and that I I would argue is what we're seeing here. So I I, I don't I don't like any of those things. Well, but it's interesting because the animosity, like some of this change in money and politics and flowing money to the outside entities, has created a more almost partisan. You know, partisanship has increased almost as a result of this, which has made people hate the parties even more, even though it's not really the parties that are at fault. I Institutional mean, kind of parties ironic. have been weakened at the same time, and that's that's not a good combination by any means. So, I mean, like, what does this mean? The parties are weaker, but they're more hated. Partisanship is up, but party strength is down. I mean, this sounds like a terrible problem. Somebody. 
Jonathan. Uh, I, I take the last one, Jonathan. Why don't you weigh in on this? I, I'm big fan of the, the most two recent articles you've had on, um, on, the, on for Brookings, so I'm interested to hear you expound a little further. Um, it's an odd thing, but these two things go together. The decline of institutional parties and the rise of individual partisanship. So a party's job is to build broad coalitions so that they can govern, make compromises, um, and get stuff done over time. And what's really important about parties is that they are the only long-term durable actors in American politics. The Republicans are over 150 years old. The Democrats are over 200 years old. So they have reputations to maintain. They have an interest in governing and stability and, and that sort of thing. When you weaken a party and they're no longer able to do as much of that binding role of bringing people together, then people need other ways to come together. One form of glue is ideology. So you get a lot of conservatives and you get a lot of liberals and you get ideological polarization. And another is partisanship, which is people rally around the party brand. I say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. But that has nothing to do with, for example, being active in the party structure, being registered that way, going to, you know, 100 years ago, parties would stage picnics, for example. Um, They were the core political activity. So you kind of see this change from parties being able to organize as institutions to being hollowed out as institutions, but becoming kind of tribal identities. And, of course, tribal identities are much harder to deal with when you're trying to run a government. I'm not sure that that said, I'm not sure I understand all the dynamics of why these two things have happened together. I'd love to hear Mark um, put in his two cents. Well, well I think a, a crucial point that you make there, and you talk about the rise of partisanship, partisanship as, a, as a binder that um, the institutional parties, as they've stepped back, individual partisanship and partisanship in the electorate has stepped forward and the increase in ideology. I think an interesting thing is that those two things go together in contemporary American politics to a degree that they really have never done before. We, we, if you go back to, say, the 1960s and even into the 70s and even into the 80s, you would see um, people who identified as Democrats, um, you know, there were liberal Democrats, there were conservative Democrats, there were moderate Democrats, and the same was true for the Republican Party. And a, a reason for that was that the institutional parties were still strong enough that they could um, force, um, well, maybe force isn't the right word, um, although I'll use it anyway. Uh, they could force people under, you know, institutional actors, they could force, well, maybe this person doesn't meet, you know, the ideological litmus test, but they're our best chance to win this election. And we're going to have a big enough tent to include, um, you know, a bunch of different people in here under our party banner in, in the aim of winning elections and controlling government. That is one important component of that. But then also, because there was ideological diversity within both of these powerful institutional parties, that opened up doors for negotiation and compromise in the actual governing part. And one of the things I, I really appreciate about the, the, the two most recent Brookings pieces that Jonathan has co-authored is it really does – we focus on all these things that have done, we've done to weaken the role of parties in the electorate and parties in elections, and, and they're critically important. But those things have also weakened the ability of parties 
to govern. And that's if, – if we're concerned about negative outcomes – that's really where the negative outcomes are because impacting their ability to structure elections and, and that's one thing. But negatively impacting our ability to govern is an entirely different matter and for me a far more important and dangerous one. And of course the parties take the blame for that too, right? Even as we've given them fewer tools to actually be effective, we've blamed them even more for their failures. That's the way it seems to me. Absolutely. And Jonathan made the point earlier that, that, that we, we go after the parties with various reforms. They perform worse because we've set them up to perform worse. So we punish them some more. The opinion of them in the right. public goes down. It's, 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 a, it's a cycle that it's difficult to see how we break that without some serious reform. Yeah. Uh, but before we start talking about what we might be able to do in the area of serious reform. I want to talk a minute about, from the League of Women Voters perspective, reading Jonathan's Brookings article about um, rational voter ignorance and how um, we can't really count on an informed electorate to make the right choice in every case. I was very provocative. Um, as I said, from a legal women voters perspective. So, Jonathan, I want you to talk a a little bit about that because it was a very important um, and profound point that you made. Go ahead. Uh, Sure. You're referring to an article that Ben Wittes and I wrote. Readers who are interested can uh, Google it, Rausch, Wittes, Populism, Professionalism, Brookings, all of those will it's will on the it right it's up. on the League of Women Voters of Maine website too. We posted it um, Fant- with the fantastic. show. Fantastic. Yep. So nothing we say in that article is the slightest bit unorthodox. It's standard political science going back to mid twentieth century, and I'm guessing Mark would agree with that. Ab- absolutely, and even before that, I mean, you can look. I, I actually had my students this week read sections of uh, some of Walter Lippmann, who uh, was making these points. You know. Or, First third of the 20th century. And, in fact, it turns out that James Madison understood these things much better than most people do today. So, look, here's the deal, Anne. Voters are very poorly informed, and it's not because they're stupid. It's because they're smart. They know that their vote is not going to tip the whole election. Um, And so they don't invest that much in becoming policy experts because they have lives to lead. To that, we can add some more recent findings. One is... um, a field of study called public choice, which goes back to the 1950s. And that has shown how no matter what voting process you use, if there are more than two candidates, minorities can manipulate those processes so that minorities can effectively outvote majorities. And that's what's happening in primary elections across the country. And that's why Donald Trump won the Republican nomination. To which you can add more recently... Uh, last 30 years or so, lots of evidence coming out of psychology about all the cognitive flaws in the way people think. And these are wired in. Again, it's not because we're stupid. It's because we're human. Um, But you put all of these things together, and then you add the fact that elections only happen every two to four years, and all they do is pick individuals. They don't give any policy guidance. And what you suddenly realize is that the founders were right. Elections provide accountability at the end of the day, and they provide for rotation in office. But today we way overburden them with the amount of work we expect individual voters to do, the cognitive burden, the time burden that we place on them is unfair and unrealistic. 
And then we expect elected officials to take much more guidance from those elections than they actually provide. So what Ben and I argue is that the founders were right. If we want to reform effectively, it's time to stop over-investing, as we see it, in increasing citizen participation and begin reinvesting in increasing professional participation. These are the intermediaries whose job is to try to find solutions, broker compromises, and build coalitions. And, of course, because we're so frustrated with the performance of our elected officials and, you know, possibly so frustrated with elections, we tend to resort more to citizen initiatives. I mean, Maine has been having a big flurry of initiated ballot questions. Um, Horrible way to govern. Well, I mean, here we go again, right? Absolutely. I mean, when I think about attacks on professionalism and politics, I, I often wonder in what other area of kind of economic or, or social life would we have these attacks? I mean, if, if you had to go in for heart surgery, you know, do you want like the top coronary surgeon out there? Or are you going to pick somebody off the street who's never done it before? Well, the choice is easy. The same thing if you're going to go fix your car or you want a good meal. I mean, any other area of public or private life, you ask people, you know, what, would you prefer someone who really knows what they're doing, who has a lot of experience doing this, or do you prefer someone who has no clue what they're doing? We're going to take the experienced person every time. Politics is the exception. We, we, there, we, we, we see someone who has experience and, and knows what they're doing as a huge problem. And, and we need to take steps to remedy that problem, which I, I just I can't fathom why we would do that. And, and you know, going back to a point made earlier, I tend to be a fan of smoke-filled rooms. I mean, I, 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 not, not that I'm saying people should be excluded from the process on the basis of, of race or gender or anything like that. That's, that's, which, of course, they were. Which, of course, they were. Right. And, that, and that was a, that's a terrible thing to do. And I don't think anybody – well, actually, I shouldn't say that right now. I, most people would not want to go back to that. But in terms of allowing – Officials with experience and knowledge and um, kind of greater insight to to make the decision on who gets to run for office or at least have a, a, a greater influence on it, to me, doesn't seem like a, a radical idea at all. But it would, it's a difficult, if not impossible, sell in contemporary American society, for sure. All right. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. We still have a lot to talk about. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. And our guests this morning are Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jonathan Rausch, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor to The Atlantic. Our topic today is political parties. Do they still matter? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or if you're right here locally, 469-0500. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer offline so that others can also get through uh, on the phone. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. Um, so, I mean, I, I think as we're talking about, um, you know, citizens' initiatives and um, smoke-filled rooms and stuff, I mean, it seems to me like after uh, the progressive reforms of the early 20th century, I mean, these things came up because the parties were not being responsive and were widely viewed as being corrupt and captured by corporate interests. And, you know, so some of this 
the, the perception about politicians being corrupt and uh, tied to moneyed interests created the need for the citizen initiative as a safety valve. And some of that, I think, is still at play, isn't it, Jonathan? There's certainly a lot of mistrust. I'm a bit unusual in that I think the standard narrative is is pretty much blaming the victim. The standard narrative is, well, these big institutions, the parties, um, and the unions and all the rest, they failed us, and so uh, they blew it. I think, in fact, in the post-war period, the political parties, um, as well as the institutions of government in America, did an amazingly good job. I mean, we're talking about a series of truly formidable politicians that were surfaced by the parties. I mean, think about it. Franklin Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, Kennedy. Truman was a party hack. But he was a tested party hack, and he turned out to be a darn good president. Think about the decisions they made. The Marshall Plan got us through World War II. And I could go on and on. Yes, mistakes. Vietnam, clearly. Uh, Civil rights, uh, horrible, horrible violations there, but, but it got fixed. So I'm kind of of the view, actually, that it's more that we failed our institutions and that they failed us a generation, my generation. Baby boomers came along and... And we kind of had it out for these institutions, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we decided that, that we could do a better job with a whole series of reforms. Um, so I think it's a myth that the system was, was broadly corrupt. It wasn't. Um, you know, every system has some corruption. Um, so I kind of see this differently from a lot of people. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure others would agree, but for whatever reason... You're correct that we live in a world with a lot of mistrust of, of parties and of political professionals. And so my job is to get on shows like this one and, <laughs> and try to begin at least making a case for why people should revise their thinking. All right. We, have a, we have a caller on the line, so I'm going to invite him to put his question forward. Lawrence, go ahead. From Belfast, you're on here. Yeah, hi. Um, I, I have a couple of points about parties, but before I get to that, um, I, 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 have, I feel I have to address this notion that Vietnam was fixed. It was not fixed. Two to four million Southeast Asians were killed and 50,000 Americans were killed. That doesn't sound fixed to me. Um, and one other thing, and that is Truman bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which many uh, historians think was unnecessary. But in any event, um, I think that in order, I, I, I appreciate very much the arguments for, for strengthening the parties. I, um, I would not have agreed to that before the start of the show, and um, to a significant degree you have swayed me. However, I think that if this is going to happen, I think, as you said, the, the, the cat is out of the bag in terms of in, um, direct participation by citizens. So that if this is going to happen, it's going to require the support of citizens. And I think that people are coming, becoming disillusioned with political parties for very good reasons, and that is that they are anti-democratic. The whole Wasserman Schultz um, thing where they tipped the Democratic parties, the primaries toward Hillary Clinton, and then um, the, the parties, the Democratic Party, have fought tooth and nail against to keep third parties off of state ballots. That is exceedingly anti-democratic. And then third, here in Maine, both parties 
working to quash referenda passed by the voters. So I, I, I don't think people can be terribly um, sympathetic to strengthening parties when the parties are acting in such terribly anti-democratic fashion. Hey, Lawrence, thanks for that comment. What do you think about that? Mark, you want to go first? Something that was specific to Maine. Well, I mean, I think I think the, that Lawrence is right that the that in the instances he outlined, those those moves are viewed as anti-democratic. Um, and 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 I think he's also right that that the public is going to be suspicious and not terribly supportive of steps that are are viewed as rolling back some of these democratic features. But I I would argue that the the founders, the designers of the American Constitution, were not direct Democrats. I mean, they designed a small-R Republican form of government, which had very limited, initially, citizen participation. They did that on purpose. If you go back and you read Madison's notes to the Constitutional Convention, you know, they were very cognizant of the dangers, in their view, of too much citizen participation. In fact, you could make the argument, and you'd be largely right, that too much citizen participation under the Articles is what got us to Philadelphia for the convention in the first place. And it's not to disagree with anything he's saying, but I think part, uh, and I'd be interested to hear what Jonathan has to say about this, I think part of where we are now is that we've 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 removed some of these um, mediating and mitigating kind of institutional arrangements. And it's become kind of just an accepted truth that the more democracy, the better. And let's just keep working to make things more democratic and increase participation. And again, I'm not anti-participation, but the, the, those mediating institutions are there for a reason. And I think they served us relatively well. And I think we're seeing um, some downside to weakening or removing them right now. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the institutions of government with the highest approval ratings are the ones with the least direct democracy, the Supreme Court, the Federal Reserve, and the military. And that's because they're good at what they do. Um, I think, again, the conventional wisdom, I'm a bit off the reservation on this, is that you can't convince ordinary Americans to be less direct democratic. I think most Americans actually want to see performance from government. And I don't really think they care all that much about hard money contribution limits or coordination control or the fine print of how parties pick nominees. Um, so, in fact, I think most of the things that people talk about, many of the things people talk about to strengthen parties, are of a technical nature, and most people in the public wouldn't care. People who would care are the activists who make a lot of noise about these things. Um, and they're making a lot of noise right now about, for example, superdelegates. But I don't think the public really is, is the main problem in making some of those changes. Um, and I think, based on my experience of talking about this, I think actually a lot of the public is persuadable. I think they want the system to work. And, and they're more open-minded than we give them credit for about being willing to think about making the institutions work better. We have another caller, Lori from Deer Isle. Go ahead. Hi, thanks. Uh, okay, well, I just couldn't quite get one word that the previous caller used. Um, he referred to the Vietnam War, 50,000 Americans and 2 to 6 million uh, Cambodians, et cetera, et cetera. And he said it is not sick or is not fit. I'm so sorry, I didn't get that word, and I'm very curious. What, it was, what? the word was fixed. Um, oh, fixed. Yeah. Oh, the Vietnam War, somebody, I'm sorry, I must have missed that. Somebody made the statement that the Vietnam War was not fixed? Well, um, I, I don't, don't want, 
Go ahead, John. I don't John. know what he was talking about, actually. I think we're, okay. I think I'm I sorry. said the c- civil, civil rights, rights got, got right. addressed. Yeah, that's, that's Vietnam that War was, was a, a big policy mistake. But those well, people yeah. got you know voted out. I mean, not that oh. it could, not that there could be reparations made, but there were political consequences. Well, yeah, and I think we okay fixed. Word was fixed, and we can all agree that. Uh, anyway, thank you. This is a fascinating show. Appreciate your help. Adios. Thanks for the call, Lori. Um, you know, I want to sort of follow up on some of this about um, the money and politics piece of it and um, the idea that I think some people may focus on, you know, when money is unlimited, the government gets captured by corporate and big moneyed interests. And some people may think that's actually happening, like right now. And some of the citizen initiative um Provisions in state constitutions arose at the beginning of the 20th century because there was a belief that the government had been captured by big money corporations. And some of the initiatives that have come up in Maine recently are also in frustration um, over the same sort of thing. So if we you know, adopt some of the reforms that you're talking about, how do we keep government from being taken over by the richest and most powerful influences? Jonathan, um, do you want to go first on that one? <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, the answer is that there are no guarantees in politics. And I think, like a lot of people, I worry about problems of oligarchy and um, plutocracy that seem to be emerging in America. Uh, but I think those are social problems. Those are economic problems. Those have to do with huge concentrations of, of wealth and uh, rising inequality um, and I think that stronger parties are part of the answer, not part of the problem, because parties historically, and still to a good extent, bring people into the process because they're looking for voters um, and balance those interests against other interests. So I think that by giving the parties more resources to do that job, um, again, there, there are no guarantees and nothing is perfect, but parties are too big to capture because by definition, they are coalitions. With the system we've got right now, where you've got weak parties, it is super easy, for example, for the Coke network, not easy, but, but there's nothing to stop the Coke network from dropping $900 million, which is a number that at one point they were talking about, into political campaigns, running all of that outside the parties, completely unaccountable. So, no magic bullets, no easy answers, but I think as you strengthen these mediating institutions, it's a step in the right direction and not the wrong direction. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jonathan Rausch, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We're talking about parties and whether they are too strong, not strong enough, or irrelevant completely, and these two are making a very strong case that the parties should be stronger, more inclusive, and more powerful. Um, how much of the argument that you're making depends on there being two strong parties, and how much of it depends on parties being the strong intermediaries as opposed to having other institutional collectives working in the political sphere? 
Well, I think if we're talking about, unless we're putting major fundamental structural changes in the American system on the table, then I, I think that one, I think you have to be looking at two parties. And I think you have to be looking at the parties as those institutions, those mediating institutions. Um, if you want to put major reforms on the table, then there are other alternatives. But as long as you're you're looking to keep the basic institutional arrangement the way it is roughly that we have it now, then I, we are almost guaranteed to have two major parties. Um, Duverger's law tells us that. Um, and, and I think in the American system that those mediating institutions have to be the parties. And I, I want to circle back to something that Jonathan just said. I think if, if we're, you know, when we worry about, you know, plutocracy or oligarchy, I think a lot of that does come from the high levels of economic inequality we see um, right now in American society. And then, and to go back to your point, that for the origins of a lot of these progressive reforms, they come on the heels of the Gilded Age, which is where we see previous levels of inequality. Data were, were not as detailed as they are now, but either as high or if not higher than they are today. All that being said, Parties historically in the American context have been the single biggest weapon for the have-nots to be able to compete with the haves in the political process. Um, you know, there's there's simply, and and I guess if you wanted to come up with maybe a close second, it would be kind of the heyday of organized labor uh, in this country in the the first half of the 20th century, and at that point. Organized labor and a political party had very clear connections with each other. Oh, th- thanks. Uh, we're getting just a note from our producer here. Um, so, Jonathan, talk about that. I mean, I'm kind of interested in the two parties. Is the position that you guys are taking actually anti-third party or? It's, it's not anti-third. Well, for me, it's not. I, I just, I'm not anti-third party. I'm just saying that third party would be a powerful third party is untenable given our institutional arrangements. I'm not anti-third party. Jonathan? Yeah, there's no reason uh, you can't have strong parties and more than two, and most European countries, of course, have exactly that arrangement. Uh, We're the exception because we have only two long-term stable parties. Um, So, uh, again, I guess it's monotonous, but I think Mark (laughs) is exactly right. Um, under the American system we've got now, there are only going to be two parties because we have this first-past-the-post system, which means that if anyone who votes for a third party is wasting their vote. Right. So that means third parties can materialize as forces in politics, but then they'll either usually evaporate or they'll be more often absorbed into one of the major parties. Um, and that's just the way it works. So when, when this comes up, and it does all the time, people say, why not a third party? Isn't that the answer to our problems? I say, well, maybe on Mars. But here on Earth, we've got a two-party system, and we need to focus on fixing that. Um, listeners, if you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation on political parties by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. Um, what about other institutions? You mentioned labor unions a minute ago. I mean, these institutions have also weakened at the same time that the parties have. Is there a role for other institutions to play a strong mediating role in this? Uh, uh, well, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, I'm I'm almost disinclined to jump in because I have so much to say about that. I'll bore you all to tears. <laughs> Uh, But my big hobby horse is that, no, it's not just uh, parties 
it has declined is most intermediary intermediating institutions in America. We're talking about the mainline churches. Uh, we're talking about the the large institutional media organizations, civic groups like Rotary and Kiwanis and Lions Club and even the even the scouts, all the way up and down the line. Um, we've seen weakening in these institutions and it appears that social media has done even more of that. And the result of that, it turns out, is to make people really unhappy because it turns out that if we're just individuals floating around out there doing our best and getting on Facebook, and then you've got these other distant bureaucratic organizations like, you know, big government over which you have no influence, you feel helpless. Uh, you feel angry. You see things going on that you don't like, but, but where do you go with that? Yep. So that's a larger crisis, and a lot of people are writing and thinking about that increasingly. And the, the party um, party decline is... is, is one piece of it. We have another caller, Carmen from Thomaston. Go ahead, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, well, I have a question about the media, too. You know, I uh, am a faithful party person, but I feel I'm kind of uh, struggling with my party a great deal um, because, um, well, the primaries are not so important as they, they ought to be, I think, for one thing. People are bored with the uh, regular meetings and organization work altogether. But on the other hand, you know, when I, I read a lot of history and particularly colonial history because I belong to the Knox reading group where we focus on the origins of our government. So I'm very faithful to that. It's really exciting kind of study. And so, so when I bring up any kind of thing like that that I've read, People say I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, and they mean by that that they're listening a great deal to MSNBC, and I know a few people who listen only to Fox, and and it's a very very strong kind of educational uh, system as a mediator. So I feel I'm very very uh, it's I think it's very upsetting that the parties cannot be the mediating and the strong organizations that you've just talked about, about the voluntary associations, I think, that go way back into our history as well. That, I mean, that's so when people are just sitting in their living room watching television, well, the television stream yeah, for hours every night, that's such a, a, a problem, I think. That's, that's exactly right, and there's social science now on that. But one thing that in-person mediating institutions did unions or classic examples, social clubs, is that they bring people together face-to-face, -to -face, and it's harder to hate people you disagree with face-to-face. -face. Yep. Um, that is, there's, turns out that online uh, interaction is no substitute for that and probably goes in the other direction. But that, alas, maybe Mark has more to say, but that is a problem that I don't think anyone has figured out what to do with. Well, I mean, that turns the, this conversation to the question for the last few minutes. What do we do? I mean, we're sitting here listening to the show, and some of us, I guess, have been persuaded by the arguments you make. What can we as citizens and what reforms can we support that are going to help us move this in the right direction? I, I, my list would be so long that I, I I would take up the rest of the time we have and more than that. But well, I guess, just give us your top two. Well, I, I, think, I mean, f f I think I'd like to undo a lot of campaign finance reform of really the last 40 years. If, I, again, um, I am in favor of f full and immediate disclosure and transparency. Um, but other than that, I, I am not a big fan of any campaign finance restriction. Uh, 
Further than that, I would remove any and all uh, term limits. I mean, I know we fortunately do not have them at the federal level, um, but there we have the Republicans have put limits on um, committee chairpersonships, for example. Um, I'm very much anti-term limit. Uh, And one thing we haven't mentioned here, and I don't don't want to portray this as as the primary culprit because I don't think it is. I think it's a secondary or tertiary one at best. But I do think that, you know, that the current gerrymandering case before the Supreme Court, I would I would like to see district lines. Um, and again, I this is a this is maybe goes against my strong party position, but I would like to see district lines um, being drawn by maybe whether it's independent commissions or something, just because I think technology is allowed for things that the founders would have never intended. I guess those are my top three. What what would you like to add to that, Jonathan, in terms of things that we could do listening to the show? And uh, well, I, I too could go on for too long. I divide things into two buckets. There's the technical mechanical bucket, and then there's the big picture bucket. If that's not a contradiction in terms, the technical mechanical bucket are all kinds of things that could be done and that people are proposing to do um, to get get the foot of regulation off of parties. And that's everything from lifting the limits on the amount of money that can flow to parties. So basically you bring back soft money and unlimited quantities, allow parties to coordinate their activities with their own candidates, which, believe it or not, is strictly limited now. And that is perhaps the most counterproductive regulation on the books, which is saying something. Um, It's very important, I think, for parties to begin resuming more control over the nomination process. And there are a lot of ways they can do that that are not super difficult. Um, For example, we at Brookings have talked about um, state parties have total control over this. You don't have to change a line of law. Um, So, for example, they could require it in order to get on the ballot. A, A candidate has to get the sign-off of two-thirds of the county party chairs in that state. That gives those people a say in the process. Uh, I think on Capitol Hill, you need to reinstate some um, some things like earmarks that allow you to make trades. You need to reduce some of the excessive transparency rules that make negotiation difficult. And I would emphasize most of this stuff is technical, and a lot of it doesn't even require legal change. So that's the mechanics None of this is a silver bullet, but there's lots of sort of steps that can be taken. So the big obstacle is that other bucket, and that's what we've been talking about this entire show, which is public hostility to the idea that if you let politicians do their job, they will do it better than if you try to micromanage and limit them at every step. And I think part of what Mark and I are trying to do on this show is get people to think twice about that try to reduce the hostility bias, I would argue it's actually bigotry against our political class, because I think it's gotten to the point where it is hobbling our ability to govern. Wow. I mean, uh, how much of, like, somebody listening to the show, it's going to end in about five minutes, making one resolution, I am going to leave this show and go do, boom, what would you say? Wow, that's a that's a, a tough one. Um, I I mean, I guess it, it's almost like I feel bad that we're agreeing this much, um, and I don't know how good a radio that makes for. But I, I think I would agree with Jonathan to, to try and and remove this animosity or bias that that we have towards you know quote unquote career politicians. It's a it's seen as a dirty word, or we need these outsiders to come in and throw the bums out and 
if they really are bums, then sure, throw them out. But I think for the vast majority of our career public officials, that they their experience matters here. And I think I would urge people to to take another look at their their views on, along those lines. We're running out of time, so I'm going to give you each just a moment to make one last parting thought. And uh, Jonathan, I'll let you go first. Well, my parting thought is is what Mark just said, which is everybody try to hate less on politicians. Politics is way harder than rocket science or brain surgery. It is just a very difficult job to do. And we, the public, we're making that job hell by hating on these guys. And um, we're making ourselves ungovernable that way. So if we could reduce the hostility a bit, uh, maybe go meet your member of Congress or maybe go to the local Democratic Party our Republican Party, whichever party you affiliate with, and say, you know, I want to help out around the joint and see what they say. Maybe getting involved in that way with a party, getting to know some of these people will reduce the hostility and increase the ability to act constructively. One last thought, Mark? I agree with all of that. And then I guess the other thing I would add would be um, for the, you know, kind of the average American to at least entertain the possibility that the other side is not completely evil and and hear out what they have to say and consume media um, from people who might disagree with you with an open mind and and at least the possibility that you're wrong and, and maybe that they're not entirely evil. I want to thank you both so much for being on the show today. We are now out of time. Our guests this morning were Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jonathan Rausch, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor to The Atlantic. I want to encourage our listeners who were interested in this topic to go to the League's website, lwvme.org, where Jonathan's articles have been posted for you to read for yourself. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be continuing this conversation on political parties this Wednesday, October 25th, beginning at 5.30 at Pat's Pizza in Ellsworth, where we have a panel of local thinkers on the strength of parties joining us for a live conversation. Our website, as I said, is lwvme.org. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series, you can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month when our topic will be 10 months in, taking stock in Maine. Um, Thanks a lot for joining us today. We'll see you next month. We know how easy it is to simply turn to WERU and not think about